Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Wednesday, October the 9th. Thank you so much for tuning in as always. Of course, it is a pleasure to have you join me. On today's show, I will be talking about an insect infestation, maybe a bug infestation. I'm not sure how you classify it. That was, uh, it's having the ability really to quickly kill off Douglas fir trees here in the province of BC. Yes, the tussock moth is on the move in British Columbia, and the Ministry of Forest says it is now being found farther north than ever before. I will be joined by entomologist Lorraine McLaughlin to kick off the second half of today's program, so stay tuned for that. If you want to know what is this moth and why is it an issue and what can we do to stop it, but we'll talk more about that at around the 35-minute mark. And to end off today's show, I'm going to be playing a little game. All right, I'm not so much a game, but it's more me just uh, harping at you a little bit. It's a new segment that I call That's Whack Wednesday, and I'll be listing off a few things that are happening around the world in our country and our province that I think are just a little bit whack. So stay tuned for the end of the show to find out exactly what those things are here on Wednesday, October the 9th. The front half of today's program, though, is all about the election. We're now just 12 days away from Election Day. So, it's crunch time, and if you haven't made a decision on who you're going to be casting a ballot for, well, maybe programs like this can help make that decision a little bit easier for you. In about 10 minutes time, I will be joined by TRU's Dr. Robert Hanlon. He attended last night's debate, and we will discuss what went down over the course of the two hours. But before that, I will give you my breakdown of last night's proceedings. Now, all seven candidates vying to serve as MP in the Kamloops, Thompson, Caribou riding had a chance to speak their voice in front of about 350 people who attended the TRU Grand Hall for a local election forum. And of course, we were able to hold it here on Radio NL for all of you to listen to. If you weren't able to make it down there, hopefully you got a chance to turn on your radio. But if not, well... Let's help break down exactly what happened. So each had a chance to provide an opening statement. So we'll play, play a quick snippet from each of their opening statements to kick things off here. So we'll start with incumbent conservative Kathy McLeod. Not many people are worried about out-of-control spending by the government. I am worried about that. Our interest payments are $26 billion a year. We all know that if interest rates go up, we're going to be in real trouble. Here's liberal Terry Lake. We have a debt-to-GDP ratio, which is the lowest in the G7, showing that we can invest in communities and in families in a fiscally responsible manner. We've made significant progress on climate change over the last four years. The NDP's Cynthia Agley. If this rioting sends an MP to Ottawa from the Conservatives or the Liberals, we're going to get what we've always gotten. Denial of the climate and housing crisis or delay of universal pharmacare. The Green Party's Ian Curry. I urge you to reject the false narrative that this election is about which of the major party leaders you find less distasteful. I urge you to reject the ping-pong politics of bouncing back and forth between your distrust of the Liberals and our fear of the Conservatives. Ken Finlayson with the PPC. To that end, we will eliminate corporate welfare and supply management because they are a corruption of those same fundamental free market principles. We absolutely will build pipelines so we as Canadians can benefit from the vast wealth that is ours. Kira Cheeseborough with the Animal Protection Party of Canada. We want to use climate change as a lens to address all other issues because it is not an isolated issue that we can 
addressed through just banning harmful single-use plastics. We need comprehensive plans that are targeting every single interconnected industry and issue that affects Canadians. And last but not least, Peter Carrick with the Communist Party. Or how about proportional representation? Again, another promise we were given, another promise broken. The dictatorial powers of the Prime Minister, just like that. Now, after everyone had a chance to have their opening remarks, members of the audience got to, of course, start asking some questions. Some of the highlights for me included a question around the SNC-Lavalin scandal and how that was handled. Terry Lake, of course, defended the actions of his Liberal government. There was no undue pressure on the Attorney General. She said, she said that there was nothing illegal that occurred. And I tell you this, fighting for jobs is what a prime minister is supposed to do. It's what a conservative prime minister would have done. They would have been no different whatsoever. McLeod, of course, being a conservative, had to fire back. What we're saying is the decision around a deferred prosecution agreement is not for Justin Trudeau, it is not for Cabinet, it's not for Bill Marneau, it is for the Director of Public Prosecutions to make that decision. Carrick had an interesting shot to throw in there as well. That jobs thing is hogwash. And if you listen to people in the industry, they say we would have got the jobs elsewhere anyway. Some other Canadian corporation would have been given the jobs, not SNC Lavalin. And while the Greens' Ian Curry, who is a lawyer, was all about upholding the law. Ethics Commissioner report makes clear what happened. And the rule of law is not something that can be bargained away and that can be sacrificed and prosecutorial independence is something that can't be sacrificed for political expedience. Now, when it came to the idea of how people would vote on this issue when they presented it in the House, pretty much all the candidates said they would vote with their morals before voting with their party. Uh, with one exception, that was being Terry Lake, who said those arguments and disagreements should be happening behind closed doors. And once those doors are open, well, you vote together as a team in the House. Right? So if you have an issue with something that's on the floor um, and, and you're part of the party that's put it on the floor, Generally speaking, you vote with your party, regardless of how you feel. And most candidates said, well, they don't necessarily believe they would do that. Terry Lake, of course, being the one who said otherwise. Um, and you know what? For the most part, Terry's right. Uh, that is the way it works. It's admirable that most say they would vote with their head and their heart, but that's just generally not how it works. Now, with that being said, of course, we're talking about seven candidates. So if you're not a part of a major party, you really don't have to worry about that actually being an issue. Like uh, Curry had said, the Greens don't whip votes. So, of course, he wouldn't have to worry about that being an issue. But liberals, conservatives, NDP party members, they would all vote the way they were told on 99.9% .9 of issues. That's just the way that it goes. Now, um... Moving on from that discussion, climate change was another hot-button issue that was brought up multiple times uh, throughout different questions that were asked throughout the night. Um, Curry discussed the Green Platform, which, uh, of course, has some very aggressive timelines. We are proposing, because this is what the science says we need to do, that we move away from fossil fuel extraction. Uh, we move away from, uh, from basically making the problem worse. And so we move away from fossil fuels and the oil sands. And we do that in a period... But before 2030. Lake gave a response that got an interesting reaction from the audience, I thought. I recognize that if you go too quickly, you will cause this economic shockwave that will in fact put people out of work. And when people are out of work, <laughs> when people are out of work, what do they care about? 
Right now, everyone cares about the environment. That's great. That gives us this momentum to actually do something about it. And uh, this topic led to an interesting exchange that took place. Uh, the PPC's Ken Finlayson got into it a little bit with a member of the audience who decided to chime in while Mr. Finlayson was explaining his beliefs on the subject of climate change. Businesses who studied the relationship between the axis of the Earth and the effect of the sun. What? Easy, easy, easy. Compared to who? Stand up so everybody can see you. Now, for the most part, last night's election forum was pretty tame. Each candidate had the time to provide their thoughts on certain issues. And as with any forum like this, um, you know, I was left a little disappointed about a thing or two. But for the most part, you know, I thought it was uh, well put together. Um, and, and, you know, everyone got a chance to have their say, which I think is great. Because a lot of times, you know, in, in, in situations like this where you have seven candidates and, uh, you know, some of them are not necessarily front runners. And, you know, people don't necessarily pay them as much attention. And that's not fair because they are obvious for you on your ballot and you should at least hear them out about what they have to say because like I said you have a decision to make you got seven options to choose from not just two or three or however you necessarily view elections you do have seven and I always say vote for who you want to vote for don't vote for who you don't want to vote for and unfortunately that's not the attitude that many people have and that actually that stance was brought up a few times by different members of parties that you know aren't you know the conservatives or the liberals and that's obviously a, an argument that is made frequently by those other parties. And it's something that uh, I, I resonate with. Now, I'm not saying I'm not voting liberal. I'm not saying I'm not voting conservative. I might. Um, but I'm just saying vote with your heart. That's all I'm saying. Now, uh, I'm sure most people out there who are listening and, you know, wanting to hear what I have to say, um, they might want me to pick a winner of last night's forum. Well, I'm not going to do that. You can do that yourself. Hopefully, I've helped fill you in a little bit on what happened last night. Uh, of course, uh, there was a Monday night's leadership debate that took place as well, so you can look back on that if you're still unsure of which way you're going to throw your vote on Monday, October 21. Um, so you still have some time, 12 days. So, so take a look at the actual platform of the person that you want to vote for. Um, you know, there are times when you may like somebody, but that doesn't necessarily mean you like what they stand for. We've all got friends that we never agree with, and you're still friends. But that nice guy that you have great debates with, maybe he's not the guy you want to represent you in Ottawa. So just think about that. Take a look at their platforms. Take a look at what people stand for and go from there. Now, this discussion is not over yet, as coming up after the break, as I mentioned off the top, it will be chatting with TRU's Robert Hamlin about last night's forum, so don't go anywhere as we continue to break this thing down. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on this Wednesday. Now, last night, of course, we here at NL got the chance to bring you the local election forum where all seven candidates looking to win the Kamloops-Thompson-Caribou riding on the 21st had a chance to be heard. I'm joined now in studio by Dr. Robert Hanlon, TRU Associate Professor of Political Science. Robert, thanks so much for coming in. Good morning. Now, uh, you attended last night's forum, so maybe just to start, give me an overall sense of how things went in your mind. Did you feel like you came away from the forum sort of learning a little bit more about each candidate than you had going in? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you got a good sense of the different approaches of, of also party platforms and that they were trying to differentiate between each other. Um, especially we see the difference between, you know, the Greens trying to differentiate between the NDP. And, and so, you know, it was a real kind of good opportunity for, for people to come out and, and kind of ask those hard questions that, you know, you don't get 
hear them say in the newspapers or, mm-hmm. or, or on the sound bites. So, uh, you know, I don't really think anyone particularly won uh, the debate, but um, it certainly, you know, it was good to see that those dedicated people, you know, putting themselves out there. Yeah, and, and one thing I appreciated too was, you know, we looked at the leaders' debate on Monday night and there was a lot of talking and yelling over one another. We didn't see that really for the most part last night. I, I don't actually recall any incident where that happened. So I guess, do you have an appreciation for that, that people actually got a chance to, to speak their mind without being interrupted? Absolutely, you know, and, you know, the, the leaders' debate was very... It was tough to watch at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, as you said, you know, speaking over each other, and and you get lost in what they're actually saying, what the what policies they're talking about, and uh, for the viewer, you know, it can be quite frustrating and actually turn you off the the whole system. So, you know, last night's format where you had this kind of uh, intro statements given, and then right over to the audience, you know, it really puts them on the spot and and it makes the candidate, you know, really make the case of why they're running and what they what they stand for. Um, and also, like looking at some of the specific issues, I guess, um, was there any particular question that you felt kind of uh, seemed to hit the audience harder? It seemed like a lot of focus was paid to climate change. There were multiple questions on climate change. It felt like the only really subject that seemed to come up time and time again. Um, I mean, was there, was there any other subject that stood out to you when it comes to the, what the audience was asking about? Climate change was definitely the the biggest one, and we saw many of the parties uh, candidates opening their opening statements addressing that issue. Um, you know, we also saw themes around taxation. We saw some stuff around the economy and jobs, uh, veterans, military affairs. You know, there were several questions on that. So, you know, it was good to see those hard questions. What what I find striking though, and it's very similar to the leaders' debate where. You know, we're really in politics. We have this uh, these concepts: one being material, and one being post-material. And, and materialism, the idea of, of 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 these hard questions about jobs, about uh, housing, about things that can be given uh, to the to the candidate. And the other other side, you've got these these big discussions about climate change rights. Uh, you know, these big things that are difficult for people to get their heads around. So you have this kind of almost this this narrative going back and forth between the main parties of saying, well, you know, it's all about these existential threats. And then on the other hand, it's all, well, yeah, this is important, but what about this, this other stuff mm-hmm. that's happening on the ground? So, you know, it, it's really trying to see how does the voter going to respond to that? What's more important to them? Um, and one of the things also when we're, when we're talking sort of about what the responses were to certain things, you could see, um, you know, among the candidates kind of who was the more seasoned politicians. We talked a little bit about this before coming on. Um, were you surprised at all, uh, you know, given the fact that we, we talked about this on the morning show as well, um, you know, Kathy McLeod being the incumbent at uh, three, three terms, um, she wasn't really attacked all that hard, and it seemed like people were more so going after the Liberal Party and Terry Lake and, and the, the, the relationship with Trudeau, I guess. Were you surprised to see the fact that, you know, someone who's been serving here for so long was, I don't want to say put on the back burner, but really not attacked as hard as maybe, you know, you would expect someone who's been uh, an MP as long as she has to to be? Right. You know, I, I think it's, it's a couple of things. One is... Um, you know, the current government is the Liberal Party, mm-hmm. and, and so Trudeau being the Prime Minister, you know, there's a real kind of implication there and a real uh, uh, consequence for voters. So so Terry Lake representing the Liberal Party is something that, you know, it makes him a natural target. Uh, but the other thing is, I think you're seeing a very new kind of unique challenge to uh, Kathy McLeod, which perhaps hasn't been here in previous elections. And so there is a lot of uh, of, of questions turning to, well, you know, what, what does this candidate stand for? And, and 
and how will they represent me? You know, I think one of the things is is that they do bring when you see this Kathy McLeod and Terry Lake narrative going back and forth was the wealth of experience that they both have in government and how comfortable they are in talking about really complex government issues, about bureaucratic issues. But the other thing is ethics. You know, ethics keeps coming back and, and I think all the candidates were going after him on, on liberal ethics and, you know, and Trudeau's ethics. And so, you know, it's it's almost, uh, again, this it's a, it's kind of a, a an important part of it, but it, it still is is something that, that distracts from what, you know, the, the incumbent Kathy McLeod, what their policy is. So, you know, we're caught up in all these ethics, but what is the party platforms of these? of these? And so, again, it makes Terry Lake kind of an easy target. So, I mean, given all of that, I guess, was there anything that you felt maybe you are disappointed didn't come up? Because obviously we're talking a lot about... Uh, policy and, uh, you know, kind of the, the comings and goings of what's happened over the last four years, as opposed to maybe looking at a, a much larger picture of, you know, maybe what happened with the conservative government prior to the last four years. It doesn't seem to come up. Uh, it didn't really seem to come up at all last night here locally. So, I mean, was there anything specific that you, you were disappointed you didn't get to hear a little bit more on last night? And especially given the fact that I think probably like a third of the debate was based around climate change. Yeah, you know, my, my area, one of my areas is international politics. So I was naturally hoping for a foreign policy question. Yeah, not one. <laughs> not one. And and same with the last leaders. I know there's a foreign policy debate that will come down the road and with bigger questions, but um, but this is, you know, Canada is a country and doesn't, it's not an island. We're not in isolation. And so really a lot of the implications of, of what the United States is doing, what China is doing, uh, you know, the implications of Brexit, I mean, all these things matter. And so, uh, you know, we're really... Uh, talking to candidates working in a party in an in a, in a interconnected world. So, you know, tying it, the local to the global, I think is something that, you know, really should be considered. Uh, just a couple of seconds left here, but I guess, you know, obviously it's uh, liberals, conservatives have kind of been the front, uh, the talk of this election so far. Was there anyone last night, especially here locally, that you thought maybe didn't enough to, to move themselves up, up in people's minds a little bit? Uh, you know, I think um, I think the Green candidate, you know, was very, uh, very strong and 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 well articulated. Uh, but I was extremely impressed with the Communist candidate yeah. as well, which was you know, and, and was very good at holding to account. You know, one of the best things about these these leaders or these candidate forms is you hold other parties to those awkward questions. So seeing the the candidates going back and forth and really saying, well, you know, wait, slow down you know, respond to this point, you know, was really uh, something good to see. Awesome. Well, Robert, that uh, unfortunately wraps up our time, but thanks so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Awesome. That was Dr. Robert Hanlon, your U.S. Associate Professor of Political Science. Coming up after the break, a moth native to B.C. is experiencing a breakout this year and spreading further north than it has before. I'll be chatting more about the tussock moth with an entomologist after this. Listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back into the Jeff Andreas Show here on a lovely Wednesday in Kamloops. An insect infestation that has the ability to quickly kill healthy Douglas fir trees, the tussock moth, is now on the move in British Columbia. And the Ministry of Forest says it's now been found farther north than ever before. I'm joined now by entomologist Lorraine McLaughlin. Lorraine, how are you doing here this morning? Very good. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you. And, and thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. 
Okay. Um, so maybe just start by telling me a little bit about this tussock moth. For those who don't know, I mean, just just what is it, um, you know, that makes it kind of such a big concern right now? And, and, and is, is it from BC? Like, where did this thing come from? And, and what is it doing to our forests? It's native to BC, and I call it a, a low elevation pest, and it, it only... Uh, goes into outbreaks in your uh, low valley bottoms, low elevation Douglas fir, ponderosa pine. And we see an outbreak about every decade. It's very eruptive and cyclical. So uh, what was new, this outbreak is we found it up near Dog Creek in the Caribou, which is further north than we've seen um, explosive outbreaks like this where it's killing trees over quite a large area. So given that cyclical, uh, you know, that cycle that it's in, um, you know, mentioned about every decade, I guess, uh, what, what kind of damage can this do to BC forests? Obviously, if it's native to BC, um, you know, I would think it's sort of expected that this would come about every so often, but just, you know, given the fact that it is moving further north, I guess, just what, what kind of damage is it doing uh, that maybe you haven't seen in the past? Right. Um, we, we monitor for it, so we can sort of expect outbreaks, plus or minus a few year, years, but when it comes, it comes on really rapidly, so we don't always know exactly where it's going to erupt into outbreaks, so it can kill trees rapidly because it eats new and old foliage and strips a tree and can kill it. So we have localized patches of mortality, but what's... Um, I guess really critical about this insect is that because it's a low elevation insect, it always starts on private land, at least here in the south around Kalmuts and the Okanagan. So we can't really do anything about it until the outbreak's on crown land. Plus, I think what people need to know is the hairs on the caterpillars cause can cause allergic reactions. They're called urticating hairs, and so people can get a rash or itchy, their eyes might water, and some people actually have full-blown anaphylactic shock when they are around an outbreak of these insects. And that all those kind of symptoms, is that strictly just when it's in that caterpillar stage? Uh, the caterpillar and the moth is covered in these hairs as well, but um, the thing is, in order to grow or get bigger in size, as you know, the caterpillars shed their um, outer skin, let's call it, mm -hmm. and with that come the hairs. So in the process of feeding and growing, they're forever shedding these um, very irritating hairs. So it just it builds up to this great loading in a site that there's just you know, hair is kind of swirling around everywhere. And if you are allergic, it can be kind of a very uncomfortable situation. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, is there anything that you can do to identify these things? Is, is the, the, the caterpillar itself, you know, easy to, to tell apart from, from other caterpillar species that might be around? Really easy. It's uh, quite a beautiful caterpillar. It gets large. And as per its name, tussock, it's got these... Um, little clumps of thick hair along the back of the caterpillar, black tufts or tussocks, plus um, long black, a little bit of red and blue on it. So it's a very hairy, very elegant looking um, caterpillar. And then another 
a feature of the tussock moth, while earlier you said, well, how does it spread? Uh, the female moth um, has what we call vestigial wings, tiny little wings, so she can't fly. So their movement or expansion is limited to um, when the caterpillars are tiny, they get air blown, or the actual mature caterpillars walking tree to tree. So outbreak expansions are very um, minimal. So the female moth actually can't fly? That's That seems kind of bizarre to me. I've never heard of a moth that couldn't fly. Uh, there's a few. Yeah, uh, yeah it's huh. an evolutionary trait, but she compensates, and that's why it's, we have a good monitoring system. She has such a strong pheromone. She comes out of the cocoon that the caterpillar spun where she pupated, and she calls. She lets um, go with a pheromone, and the male moth finds her often from quite a distance. They mate, and then she lays her eggs right on the cocoon that she emerged from. So we use that pheromone to uh, monitor population levels, and um, it's really quite handy <laughs> to take advantage of. That's interesting stuff. Uh, I'm joined here by entomologist Lorraine McLaughlin. So um, <clears throat> is there any idea just how much farther north, I guess, this, this moth could potentially go? Obviously, you, you mentioned it's as, uh, you know it's far north as it's been um, documented here to date. Um, I mean, is there a concern that it could go for, farther? And, and just sort of is, is any idea sort of what damage it has done to the forest? I mean, given that it is native to BC, it's obviously something that, you know, we're, we're prepared for. The province is prepared for, I would think, or at least is trying to be. But just, you know, when it is, uh, you know, decimating some fir tree populations, I would assume, I guess, just how big of a concern is that? And, and just how far north do you think this thing could go? Well, we're... We're wondering about that. I mean, it can't. It has to stay within the range of its host, which is interior Douglas fir, um, which does, you know, it winds small patches all the way up to Prince George and through there. But the bulk of it is in the Caribou and here in the South. And I think it's a matter of um, the climate, the proper conditions, because I'm sure there's very, very, very low levels of tussock moth throughout many or all of our fir forests, but uh, the conditions haven't been right for it to reach these outbreaks. We don't quite know why or how it came to outbreak in the caribou, and it does cause localized damage. Like I said, it kills trees, but out outbreaks are very concerning more to people and um, rural communities and private land because that's where the damage is done and it can reach a few thousand hectares but you know nothing like the hundreds of thousands of hectares like many of the bark beetles hmm. um so is there uh, anything that people can do, because you obviously mentioned uh, a number of times that obviously yeah, it, it kind of seems to start the spread on private land, and, and that seems to be one of the bigger concerns when it comes to damages, what's happening on private land. So what, what should people do, and what should people be aware of in order to maybe help prevent uh, the tussock moth and the caterpillar that, uh, you know, it starts from, to, fr from um, you know, spreading or from uh, really invading their property? Is there anything that people can do or any, um, you know, steps that people can take to, to try to mitigate the problem before it starts? Sure, they can be diligent and look, uh, number one, 
look for the caterpillar during the summer. It feeds from May through to late July, and I'm sure if they've seen it on their property, they will have noticed it. And this time of year, they can look for these egg masses and cocoons. They're on the underside of branches of large Douglas fir trees that they can see. They can go online and look. They're about the size of your thumb, um, and they're sort of beige white covered with this little mound of eggs. So if they see those, they know they potentially have a problem. Um, they can contact somebody like myself and they can actually put out a pheromone trap to see if they have a population. And then they might consider um, treating it. You can do ground sprays um, with there's very, uh, there's biological insecticides they could use. Um, and just a caution, if um, people have dead trees from the tussock moth and they cut them for firewood, is try not to move it too far because you could be moving egg masses. And also be careful because cutting up trees that have had tussock moth um, feeding on it could have a lot of hairs and it could mm -hmm. um, you know, spread them around and make people not feel too good. Um, do you have any idea just how common, I guess, an allergic reaction to those those hairs would be? Is it something that, you know, that is a majority of people, or is it a, a small oh, population? Any ideas? One in, one in five, one in ten so, yeah, people. Yeah, pretty, pretty common. Yeah, but it ranges from just, you know, a little mm -hmm. tiny little irritation on your hand or skin, you know, that you hardly even notice. Um, not a lot have the very, very severe allergic reaction, but a lot of people have that just a, a an itch or a rash. Um, I'll, I'll get you out of here on this, Lorraine. Um, so you had mentioned, obviously, this is a, uh, an outbreak that happens about every 10 years, so it's, it has a cyclical nature to it. Um, but when it does break out, I guess, how long does it typically take? How long does that cycle of outbreak take to, to sort of go back to those normal levels? Any ideas sort of what the time frame is for the tussock moth to have this big spread and then sort of go back to its, its uh, normal population numbers? Right. It's, it's what we call eruptive. So the actual outbreak when it damages trees is anywhere from one, which is good for us, to about four years in duration. And it's interesting that the outbreaks are really synchronized over geographic areas. Maybe they don't all start in the same year, but they'll start within one to three years. So in that time span, you have these spots all over the, um, their historic range popping up. And they have, obviously, we have a lot of low elevation Douglas fir around here, so there are a lot of potential areas that we could see this in the next year to four years. All right. Well, definitely something for people to pay attention to and, and maybe keep an eye out for those caterpillars to, to help it from spreading. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join me, Lorraine. I really appreciate it. Okay, you bet. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was entomologist Lorraine McLaughlin. Coming up after the break, water isn't the most hydrating beverage in cases of syphilis are on the rise in B.C. Also, the gender wage gap in Canada is actually the largest in B.C. I'll be talking more about all that after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back here on Wednesday, October 9th. And of course, as always, thank you so much for tuning in. 
In honor of Hump Day, I thought I would unveil a new segment to the show. It is time for That's Whack Wednesday. It's That's Whack Wednesday. In this segment, I will let you know about a few things that are going on in the world that I think are just a little bit... Now, let's start with the gender wage gap. The fact that it even exists, well, I gotta say, that's pretty... And according to a study from Stats Canada released this week, BC is the worst province in the country. On average, Canadian women earned 13.3% less than their male male counterparts, which is about 5% better than than things were in 1998. So between 1998 and 2018, it looks like there has been some headway made in that 20-year period. But when we look here specifically in BC, that gap increases to 18.9%, basically the same as it was nationwide in 1998. You know what that is? That is followed up by women in Alberta who had a 17.6% gap last year. And PEI was actually the only province where there was no wage gap between the sexes. So PEI, for you, you get a Ric Flair. Now let's put that percentage into real numbers. The report found that Canadian women aged 25 to 54 earned an average of $26.92 an hour in 2018, while men earned an average of $31.05 an hour. You want to extrapolate that for someone working 40 hours a week for 52 weeks a year, and that has women making about $56,000 a year, whereas men are raking in over $64,500. That's about 8500 bucks. That's a lot of dough. Now, taking a look at the westernmost province in which we reside, and the average wage for a man in 2018 was $31.73. That's up a little bit. That's nice. Compare that to women, $25.83. Oof, that doesn't look so good, does it? Extrapolate those numbers again. It's an annual difference of over $12,000. You know what that is? That is pretty... Now let's take a quote right out of this StatsCan report. Given that women in Canada have surpassed men in educational achievement, diversified their fields of study at post-secondary institutions, and increased their their representation in higher status occupations, the persistence of gender wage inequality warrants continued attention. Yes, I could not agree with it more. Yes, it's true I am a man and I personally won't complain about making more cash, but that doesn't change the fact that maybe it isn't right. I'd say let's go with that. One more thing to throw out there uh, in this report is that it was funded by the Federal Department for Women and Gender Equality Canada, and it stated that just over half the gender wage gap in B.C. could be explained primarily because of the prevalence of male-dominated industries, but the balance was still unexplained. So even if there is a bit of an explanation, I'm not so sure it's good enough. All right, what else in the world is looking a little whack to me here today on Wednesday? Well, here's something that's going on in B.C. that makes me shiver when I hear it. Figures from the B.C. Center for Disease Control have reported 919 new cases of syphilis in 2018. That's a 33% jump from the year before. That is just a little bit. 
Now, many of these uh, infections occurred in gay and bisexual men. Uh, the provincial health officer says that rates are now climbing again, and so they're working to raise awareness. Syphilis is a bacterial infection that can be treated with antibiotics, but left untreated, it can lead to some serious complications, including damage to the brain, heart, and other organs. So, with that in mind, protect yourself. I'm not going to educate you on having protected sex, but hey, maybe just be a little more careful out there, okay? Um... Uh, what else? Let's move along from that. I didn't want to spend too much time on that one. It, uh, like I said, gives me the heebie-jeebies a little bit. Now, uh, you want to know what else is pretty whack? Apparently, I have been lied to my entire life. You know what? I gotta say, that is pretty whack. I have always been led to believe that water was the best drink for a person to have when they're looking to hydrate, but apparently... That is not the case. According to a study from Scotland's St. Andrews University, milk, Pedialyte, and soda. Soda. Top the list of most hydrating beverages. I'm mean, going to be honest, I don't even really know what Pedialyte is, but hey, apparently it's very hydrating. Now, I am shocked to see pop on this list. I did not expect that at all. So, with that in mind, from now on, when I start working out... I'm just going to be drinking two liters of cola. That's it. That is it. Super Troopers fans, you know. Pull a farva. I'm drinking a two liter of cola. Give me a uh, liter of cola. A what? A liter of cola. Liter of cola. Do we make liter of cola? Gyms. I think they should no longer have water fountains. They should have soda fountains. Come on. Let's go. Let's get on this. Now, milk being on the list... That was a bit surprising to me at all, but it does make a little bit of sense when you sort of break down the reasoning behind it. It replaces sodium lost in sweat. Okay, makes sense, and it helps the body retain fluid better because, get this, and it makes perfect sense, it takes longer to digest, so therefore the liquid actually stays in your system longer. So, if you're thirsty, milk will do. I will add this morning, though, from my own personal experience, milk is not a great beverage to have if you've had a few too many bevies the night before. I made that mistake once. I will not be making that same mistake again. So to recap this study here, top five beverages to keep you hydrated for at least a four-hour period are skim milk, Pedialyte, full-fat milk, orange juice, soda. You want to know where water and sparkling water came in? They came in at numbers 10 and 11, respectively, for most hydrating beverages. And you know what I think about that? I think that is pretty whack. This has been the first ever edition of... That's Whack Wednesday with Jeff Andreas. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you tuned in for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.